everybody that is coming here. You know, I was thinking about doing uh, an eight part of this series that I've been doing just to kind of kind of wrap it up. And uh, and then of course I came over this past Sunday and I said, well, I'm going to have to combine some of what's going on. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's certainly something that has global importance from a political or geopolitical standpoint. Um, but for me personally, I was actually surprised at how saddened that was, because, you know, we, the team and I haven't talked for a long time. As you can imagine, you know, there's no personal connection, right? But yet there is, um, because it's really interesting, uh, after I, I learned that she had passed away, I thought, figure, or at least in that sense, as it was born, always been there. And so I just thought, well, how does this connect or incorporate into the idea of the kingdom of God? Because obviously he's a king, and he was reigning over a kingdom, albeit as a figurehead. It was a kingdom, right? You guys got rid of the uh, monarchy, all odds go. And yet, it's interesting, it's always been fascinating to me that the American culture still has a fascination with the British royal family and the intrigue and what goes on with all the relationships and all the drama that certainly happened over the last few decades. And I think maybe there's a fascination, and then you're glad it's all over there. Right? Because there's enough drama here as it is, right, certainly in our political leadership. But so my last message on this topic was the return of the king. Because that's what he has promised. The king is dead, long live the king. Immediately upon Elizabeth's death, Charles became King Charles III. associated to King Charles I, who was the one that got his head cut off, when England decided, we're going to be a republic, and did that for about 10 years, and then said, oh, never mind, we'll bring Charles II back. And so there's just not a lot of great historical connection there. Why did he keep that name? The answer is good. But he could have changed it. Oftentimes, monarchs do change their name when they are invested and when they become that monarch because it's kind of like a holy birthday. And so the process of the king has two birthdays. Her day of birth and then her day of ascension to the throne. So I just thought it was interesting, the timing. And, you know, <laughs> it's not the return of the king that we were looking for. Because it is just another man. It's another man getting onto another man-made throne over another man-made kingdom. Albeit it is a kingdom now that has had an uninterrupted, except for the ten years of republic, for almost a thousand years. There's been somebody that could sit on that throne, but it's still man-made. 
So with the passing of what everybody is universally saying is the greatest monarch in English history, the British history, Queen Elizabeth, her son Charles has become king. Stand by for the second of these tales. As far as I could get into it pretty quickly, but I just don't have time. You guys sing the national anthem and put the wrong words. My country to the thee, being that it means. But yeah, since since my birth, I've only ever known one monarch, and that's been the, the theme, because she has been on the throne for so long. And so it's, it's really uh, an interesting time in history. I was privileged one time to see the queen. In person, she drove by. Um, I was in school, and uh, she would come to the area, and we were able to line up along the road as the military came by. And as soon as she reached this crowd of kids while waving Union Jack, the car slowed down, did the royal wave, and uh, she smiled, and we saw her, and it was very fun. About as close as uh, most people get to seeing the king. The widow's passing was some interesting conversations going on about it being a historical moment. And certainly in, in England, it's a historical moment. Uh, but maybe even globally, it's a historical moment. Uh, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson said that she was the last serving public figure who served in uniform during World War II. Think about that for a moment. The last serving public servant. Because, you know, all the other public servants that may have been in World War II have either, either died or very old, uh, but they're certainly not serving. And she was serving right up until the day that she died. In fact, she just saw the new Prime Minister of England for an audience just, I think it was 72 hours before she died, still doing her duty. In England, they are calling it the end of the second Elizabethan age. And it's been an 
when she was born, the British Empire was at its largest It was, at that time, the most powerful force on Earth, containing one-quarter of the world's population and controlling one-quarter of the world's capital. And in her lifetime, she saw the dissolution of that empire and the rise of the United States as the third hyperpower. Really fascinating life. Observing all the and not just a witness of history, right? But living in that history, a part of that history. And she, as far as I know, never read a book, never shared a lot about her experiences, but that seems kind of fascinating story. And if you, if you have an opportunity, you should go on YouTube. There's a really interesting story, one of her former bodyguards telling the story um, about how he was uh, he was up at Balmoral and uh, in Scotland and she uh, she oftentimes in that area would just go out and about walking with a sole bodyguard in the community in the village and so on people were used to seeing her all the time and two American tourists uh, came hiking along this trail and uh, stopped to visit with her and her bodyguard. They had no idea who she was. They didn't recognize her. And we just got chatting, and they asked her, well, uh, how long have you been coming here? And she's like, oh, well, no, firstly they asked, well, do you, do you live here? She said, no, I live in London. And they said, oh. And she said, I just come up here for the summer. I, I, I own a place for several of us. And, and they're like, oh, well, that's nice. Well, so have you been coming here a long time then? And like, yeah, since I was a little girl. And, uh, and, and then they said, well, you must have bumped into the Queen at some point. And, and he says, um, the Queen just turned around to him and said, uh, uh, no, but the Jews, Jews matter a lot. <laughs> Pointing to her bodyguard. And, and so then he says they had such a great relationship. When the tourist asked, um, what, what is she like? She said, oh, she's fine. She can be a little cantankerous sometimes. But she has a great sense of humor. And so they finished their conversation, and they asked, well, uh, would you mind if we took a photo uh, with, would you take our photo with the Queen's bodyguard? So apparently, the queen took their camera or their phone and took a picture of them with her bodyguard. And then also they took a picture with, with her, still not realizing. And as they walked away, she said to him, I really wish I could be a fly on the wall. And they get back home and somebody says, you know who that is, right? I can't imagine how many stories that she has like that. Uh, and then, you know, certainly with dealing with foreign leaders and other interactions uh, throughout history, it would be uh, really interesting. I know that she had uh, she journaled, maybe at one point, but I'm not sure. But 
nonetheless, we have a new king on, as I said before, a man-made throne and a man-made kingdom. And whatever happens to that kingdom and that new king, we know that it is not ultimately God's alone. There is a king coming whose kingdom will outstrip even the longer-serving monarch and British. That will be just a second or two compared to our king who is bringing his kingdom over this earth. You know, there's different times in Queen Elizabeth's life that she made mistakes. Maybe one of the largest mistakes of her reign was forcing Prince Charles or King Charles to marry Diana. That ended up really badly, didn't it? And had that not happened, maybe we wouldn't have had all that drama and all of that, those issues, and maybe Diana would be alive someday, living a different life. The Queen made mistakes. Our King never makes mistakes. His kingdom is one of peace. His kingdom will have no end. And he will always do what is best for his subjects. In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. So that means the kingdom of the United Kingdom. And that means any other kingdom on, on the earth. And that also means any other government on the earth. Not just kingdoms forms of government, republics, this republic, any others around the world, at this moment, become his automatically. Just like when the queen died, Charles automatically became the king. And then it says, And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reign. The nations are angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead, they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name. small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, earthquakes, and great hail. Pretty big moment. Just, you know, a few things going on there. Lightnings and thunder and great hail and the heavenly hosts singing, and the 24 elders all proclaiming the King of Kings. And that he has taken up his power and reign. So earlier today, in, in England, in London, the, uh, what do they call it, the Accession Council met. The last time that council met was when Queen Elizabeth 
king and queen. And they met to proclaim officially Charles III as king. And for the first time in history, this, this really ancient ceremony was televised. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I'll probably go and, and take a look at that. But what I can tell you is it was full of what the British do best, right? Full of pageantry and pomp and trumpets and people in funny costumes and proclamations and great speeches. And all the leaders of the country were there. Doing this great ceremony. Now, you know, for today we kind of think, well, why do you do that? I mean, everybody knows he's a king. Uh, but back when this was instituted, it was never a peaceful transition of power unless you were really deliberate about it. You had to make sure everybody knew no, 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 it's not that guy that wants to be king, it's this guy that's the king. And you had to be very clear about who was now in charge. And yet, for all of their pomp and ceremony, it's nothing like when Jesus takes up great power. Just think of that. You go online and take a look at that ceremony. Nothing like it. Has this happened? Is it going to happen soon? Still out into the future? I don't know. It's hard to tell from Revelation. But when it does happen, I would love to be there. It would be an awesome sight to see and, and to know the moment in which Jesus begins to actively engage in the government of this country. All the kingdoms become the kingdoms. good a monarch as she was, Queen Elizabeth did not deserve, really, our admiration. She certainly did not deserve people's worship. Maybe respect for the role that she was doing, but ultimately she was just like all of us, right? And she proved that just a few days ago. Then she joined the weak and the strong joined the poor and the rich in the same place as we read in Proverbs. And she died. Our king, he died and rose again. To never die. To establish his kingdom forever. For it to never end. And that's just hard to imagine, isn't it? How can you imagine a kingdom so used to monarchs dying and leaders passing on or getting hopefully voted out of office. It hasn't been there so many years. And we're used to the change in the march of history. This kingdom will not pass away. Then what happens? What happens Look around the world today. I think it's fairly reasonable to say that Jesus is not directly ruling the government of this earth. I think 
He's in power, don't get me wrong. He already told us all power in heaven and in earth is in his purview, is given to him. But I think there would be a lot better outcomes, wouldn't there, if Jesus was making some calls to the Speaker of the House or the President of the United States or the Prime Minister or whatever world leaders and telling them, okay, no, you need to change how you do and we'll start with your government. He's not yet taking that direct power and making those individual decisions that affect people's lives. And yet there is a day coming when he will. And he will to take that direct rule. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after those who are Christ's at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. And that's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? The ending all rule and the ending any kind of authority or power. Is he just ending the rule? Remember, I, I talked about this in the previous one of my previous messages on the series. We go back to the very, very beginning when Adam and Eve are set in the garden, and Adam is told to have authority over what? Everything in the garden, all the animals, everything God put under man, except ever. Ending all of these lines of succession of man trying to rule over other men. Now, don't get me wrong, we, we need a government, right? We need to organize, we need to get together and have infrastructure and maybe common defense and, and these kinds of things, yes. But in the end, it ends up being man ruling over other men. That's the very reason God did not. To have a king. But he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And it's kind of interesting, we don't think about it. But the governments of man, the kingdoms of man, even the very best ones, are enemies of God. He must reign until he's put down all of those authorities, all of those powers. Only Jesus Christ is king. The last enemy. The last enemy that will be destroyed is God. And it's interesting, there's a relationship there. This is part of the whole idea of, of ending man's rule and ending the kingdoms of man, ending the governments of man. Because ultimately, what's the power 
of those authorities? What's the ultimate power that the government can exercise over it? It's the state that often. You don't do what we say. If you don't follow this law, you don't obey the king, put you in prison. Tried to take your life. Or we can get Ending all of that structure, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put on him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is exempted, is not included under that. That is the Father. And that when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What it's supposed to be all along. That God is our king. The Father is our king. Jesus Christ is our king. And under that government we flourish. Under his love we flourish. And he sets the whole world up for our development and our growth and our betterment, unlike the kingdom of man. He hasn't completed this task yet, folks. We don't see this happening yet. We long for it. We want it. And yet, he has already purchased this world. He has already Purchase this, what shall we call it, earthly field. He purchased it with his own blood. I know that there are prophecies that need to come to pass. The time of man is not quite finished as a rule over this earth. There's many things that are listed in, in end time prophecy that are still yet Yet the end will come, and the kingdom of God will be here on earth as it is in heaven. There is a day coming, is that when the old hymn says, "When my faith shall be set." When our faith, when our trust in God, when we see that kingdom come, they, that day is coming. You know, I've talked about a number of different things in this, this series. And if you remember them, but we talked about how we can prepare our hearts for the coming of the King. We talked about having enough of the Holy Spirit, enough of the oil. We talked about what God will do, what, what the King will do to the enemy that he finds when he returns. There's lots of things we talked about. But the one thing I haven't really talked about is why. Have you ever asked that question? Why is there going to be a kingdom of God? Why is he doing this? Why is he bringing a kingdom to the world at all? Why is he bringing a kingdom to this earth? This tiny little planet around a fairly normal star in a very small area of our average sized galaxy. Quiet corner of the universe. Why 
why is he even concerned with us at all? What is it that makes him want to bring a kingdom, his kingdom, his throne, his amazing power and presence here? Why does he even want that? To do that. Why does anybody do that? something that he values more than all of creation. There's something that he values more than his life itself. You realize that? Something more that he values than his own life. Something so precious to him. A treasure. A pearl of great price. bringing the kingdom of God for you. That's it. It's that simple. He is bringing the kingdom of God to us. Why do we have all these prophecies? Why do we have these scriptures and these promises? What is he trying to do with all of this? With the Bible itself, with, with everything that he has told us. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44, Jesus says, again, let me say it another way. Let me try and explain this to you more, he's saying, so that you can understand. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys. Most often, we look at that scripture and we say, wow, the kingdom of God is such a treasure to us. We're going to sell everything that we have so that we can buy that. We're going to give up this other desires and other goals in our life so that we can have that. But that, of course, is the wrong approach. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he is found the one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew the shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels that threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth separate the wicked from among the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to them, Have you understood these things? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Uh, did they really? I wonder if they really did. Because don't forget, they were still thinking that sometime soon he's going to declare that he's the new king of Israel. So maybe, maybe they didn't quite understand. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out his treasure 
things new and old. Now it come to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there. You know, when, um, like, like that story I mentioned earlier, after somebody meeting the queen, they didn't know who she was. So when people met the queen and they did know who she was, certainly in a formal setting, they would oftentimes lose the ability to speak. Right? They'd get really nervous. Uh, everybody's watching and all the cameras. And oh, who's this person talking to the queen? And they would uh, get a little tongue tied. As you can imagine, certainly when you meet people that are, are considered important or influential. And they would uh, maybe get overwhelmed by me. A really interesting story with, uh, you guys no longer the Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was Prime Minister for about 10 years. And uh, when he was first elected into office, I think the, the, the swing was from the Conservatives to the Labour Party when he was elected. Hadn't really interacted with the Queen much, and so as is the, the formality, he has to go to the Queen uh, at the palace, and she has to invite him form a new government. And um, there's actually a funny scene in the, the, the TV drama that was uh, based on the scene, um, and it's called The Crown, where, you know, they're, they're talking, and they're, he's talking with his wife, and she's kind of like, all right, now, well, you need to go in there and be all purposeful, and don't be overawed by her majesty, and, you know, because I, I'm not saying he was a Republican, but he kind of had some non-monarchist tendencies. So he goes, and he's the only one in the room with the queen, and he, he meets the queen, and they start having a conversation. And yeah, he just kind of starts to gel. He gets the reminder that his first prime minister was Winston Churchill. But who are you by comparison? Yeah, he turned pretty much into putty into her hand. It's the power of the office. Right, and every, all the importance that is, is put around this figurehead. And yet, really, she had no power. She couldn't decide, I don't like you, I don't want you to start the government. She had to invite him to be the prime minister. She had no power other than this symbolic uh, impression or power that, that she had. Nothing in comparison to his power. I think about that. Do we keep that in mind? I'm not trying to encourage us to be fearful or afraid, but do we keep that in mind when we pray? Do we remember who we are really praying to? He is our closest friend, our protector and defender. He wants an intimate relationship with us. But he is also a king with absolute power. How would we be in front of a king compared to when we go on our knees in front of Jesus Christ? He has the real power. 
something nobody expected. He did something that the angels, I don't think, expected. He did something that the enemy never expected. He divested himself of that power and died for us. He considered us of such value that we were worth all of his life. All of his life. His eternal existence. We are that important. We are that valuable to him. Even if there was only one of us saved, that the slave gave, that he needed to save. We are the treasure in the field. We are the pearl of great price. We are that treasure that is counted raw from the sea with that great fragment. We're the treasure. And he wants to keep us. He wants to treasure us and value us. Why? Have you ever asked that? Why? What does he see in me? What does he see in you? value could you have for him? You're priceless. We are priceless to him. I don't think we think about that enough. I think oftentimes we're thinking, well, I need to be what? Good enough. I need to do I need to get rid of these bad things in me so that I might be something that he would like. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that thinking is he's already died for it. He already considered it valuable enough. He already thought I will pay this price to buy this field that we call earth. Because in it, there are treasures that I want to have. I want to have these treasures. We're riddled with impurities. We're rough around the edges. We're broken in places. He sees the jewel. The largest diamond ever found, and so there are diamonds way deep in the earth that we haven't gotten to yet. But the largest one is the Tullian, Tullian diamond, if I'm pronouncing that right. You guys heard of this diamond? In its rough form, it was 3,106 carats. Yeah. 3,106 carats. And it weighed 1.3 pounds. I mean, do you imagine that? Not only that, when it was found, it wasn't found by, you know, like drilling deep into this mine. It was found on the surface of the mine. And the guy that found it wondered at first, that couldn't possibly be a diamond. It's way too big. I mean, they could have dumped slag on top of it and moved on. But he 
went over and he picked it up and he inspected it and he said, oh boy, this is a diamond. And how could he tell that it was a diamond? Is it all shiny and glowing and twinkling in the sunlight? It looked like a crystal, rock kind of crystal you know what you're looking for, you can tell a diamond, as they say, is a gem. So they took it, and uh, I think this was in the early 1900s, and it was found in, in a diamond mine in South Africa, right? So it's under the British Empire, it's part uh, of the British Empire at that time, and uh, it was sent as a gift to King Edward VII. And it is now part of the crown jewels. So that diamond was cut, and it was cut again by a master jeweler, I think somewhere in Europe. Um, and it is now part of the crown jewels. In fact, if at some point here in the future, there will be the coronation ceremony for, for King Charles, and if you see the scepter, you'll see that the largest portion of that diamond uh, is on the scepter, and that is a mere three, uh, 530 carats Cut diamond right in the top of that scepter. Worth a few dollars. And then the other pieces are scattered around <laughs> in the rest of the crown jewels. Crown, I think maybe in the orb and some other, some other pieces. You know, smaller diamonds. Only a hundred carats each or something. Do you know how much the crown jewels are worth? Nobody does. Nobody does. Their, their value cannot be estimated. They are priceless. Right? You want to kind of estimate the value of each diamond, maybe? The collection and the history and everything that they're worth—it's priceless. There isn't enough money. I mean, you'd have to conquer the island to get them, right? They're priceless. They would never be sold. Just like these crown diamonds. We are the crown jewels. We are the treasure in the field. There's a reason he's bringing the kingdom. He bought this field so that he could have us as his treasure. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and in chapter 2, rather, in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. Raised and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through grace, through faith, and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we are his workmanship. 
His work. We are not our own work, you see. We don't get to craft us. We don't get to shape us. We don't get to make ourselves good enough. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice the good works come after. We have been crafted and created and formed by God. Which God prepared beforehand that we should work in. Who's doing the work? Who's doing the refining? Who's cutting the raw diamond into that that precious, glistening diamond in your crown jewels? Who's doing that? Who's cutting away the brokenness and all the sin that is of no value? Are we doing that? Or we're trying to. And we're trying to gain that righteousness by works. Trying to do things The diamond had feelings, right? <laughs> what would that feel like as that jeweler is cutting on us, cutting away the, the, the dull and the dross, cutting away the bits of rock that's stuck on the side? We would much rather, I think, in our natural state, just to be mined up from the earth, rinsed off under the some water and set on a shelf. Just don't hurt us. What are diamonds made for? Why do we cut diamonds? Why do we do that? It would be interesting to go back in time, right, and find out who's the first person that said, oh, we could do this with this super hard rock and make it pretty. Why do we do that? What's the purpose of that? Other than to, to win our potential What's the purpose of that? Be admired, valued, looked upon, to, to decorate somebody or to be in the crown jewel. That's why we have diamonds. That's why we cut them. That's why we shape them. So that they will reflect the light around or will shine. Diamond doesn't do it itself. The diamond is raw and rough and good for nothing but just cutting the handles. And that's not what we want to do. We want to shine with the light of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation. Ah, there you go. Work out your own salvation. So do it all yourself and do it all right. All the time. That's not where it stops. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do His good pleasure. 
He works in us to shape us into His jewel, His precious treasure, so that we what? Then we'll be His good treasure. Get it so backwards to work and make ourselves righteous. Like I said, we might not mind getting um, lifted out of the dirt and rinsed off a little bit and put on the shelf. This whole cutting on his business and making it perfect, making it complete, that's harder to take. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Dug out of the earth, dug out of this field, and this, this field that Jesus bought with his own blood, so that we can shine in his light. We once were not a people, but are now a people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained We are the treasure. We are the precious jewel. The crown jewel of the king who's bringing his kingdom. So that we can be in that coronation. So that we can be glorious to him, reflecting his light. Let him shape us and turn us into 